0: well good morning everyone glad you make it made it i did set a couple alarms last night i was so afraid that i would show up here at nine o'clock thinking i had an hour left so uh i am here thank goodness i have prayed that i can get through without a coughing spell i'm on week the end of week two of of being uh, down and out. Anybody else been down and out over the last few months? Yeah, there's something going around, right? So anyway, we'll get through this. Uh, Turn with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we continue uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been hard-hitting. It will continue to be hard-hitting today. Uh, When you're doing a series, a mini-series between chapters 8 and chapters 10, and it's called Dethroned, getting yourself off the throne, you know it's going to be hard-hitting. And this morning's passage, I have entitled it, A Cautionary Tale. A cautionary tale is a folklore or legend or story or narrative many times where danger has been talked about but ignored. One of the most famous cautionary tales is the one about King Midas, whose greed... (laughs) ultimately destroyed him uh, and his family. Everything he touched turned to gold, and turned in his, including his food, his water, and even his daughter. His greed destroyed him. Is the story that warns its listener of danger. Typically three essential parts to a cautionary tale. A prohibition is stated. Some act, behavior, or thing is said to be dangerous, and then there's this narrative told where someone disregarded the warning and actually performed the forbidden behavior or act. And then finally, the violators themselves comes to an unpleasant fate or ending, which is often described in grisly detail. This morning, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, is a cautionary tale. But it's not fake. It's real. It's not a legend. It's actual reality. So as a quick reminder, we started this series in chapter 8. Paul addresses the issue of many of the Christians in the Corinthian church attending banquets and feasts that worship uh, pagan idols. And they're attending and they're seeking to justify their participation in these pagan worship events. In light of that, in chapter 8, Paul dealt with an aspect of this. He dealt with it in terms of its impact upon the whole body, that the the stronger brother was not loving the weaker brother and was causing the weaker brother to fall back into sin. And Paul's saying to them, your self-focus is killing the church. But today, what he does in chapter 10, he addresses this issue of attending pagan worship feasts head on. The Corinthians were basically saying to Paul this, Paul, listen, we are in the church, we're Christians, we've embraced the gospel, we've been baptized, we have the benefits and privileges of all that God says is true of us now in Christ. It's not that big a deal, it's just food. And it's in a weird place, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on in that temple. It's not great, but, but we're not doing that stuff anymore, really. And, and we're okay. Paul's point is they were becoming nonchalant, arrogant, haphazard about how the gospel should radically transform every area of your life. They were putting themselves in grave danger the same danger that paul spoke of last week in monty's sermon if you just look up in chapter 9 here's the grave danger here's what paul's trying to say to them that he said about himself he says do you not know verse nine, uh, chapter 9 verse 24 do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize so run That you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. Paul says, I do not run haphazardly. I run with great self-control and great self-discipline in order that I may not be disqualified. Paul is warning them, I want you to run like me so that you won't be disqualified. And some have said that Paul is saying here he's afraid he'll lose his salvation. No, never. The apostle Paul is not going to lose his salvation just like you and I will if we place our trust in Christ. Paul is saying here, I will lose my ministry. I will bring shame upon Christ. I will waste my life. I will invoke the discipline, discipline of a God who loves me greatly. Paul says, I don't want to be disqualified, and neither do I want you to be. I actually want you, Church of Corinth, to be a fruitful, beautiful witness in the sick city of Corinth. So Paul confronts them in chapter 10 verses 1 through 13, and as he does, he becomes a history teacher. Here's what he does. He takes them back to the Old Testament, and he reminds them of the privileges and blessings of God's people had in Israel, but yet something went terribly, terribly wrong. Before we move forward and read this text, I want us to take just a minute here this morning and understand how this text speaks to you and I today. You and I are not struggling with eating food, sacrificing worship to idols in a pagan temple. Would you say amen to that? We got a lot of struggles, but that ain't one of them, right? Thank God. To put it bluntly, we got to ask the question, we got to see this this morning, what does this text have to do with us? Should we just move on to the book of 1 Corinthians? Do we find something that's more relevant no, here's, here's what this text has to do with us. Paul tells us in verse 13, I put it at the top of your notes, 13a, the beginning. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So the question this morning we must ask is no matter the situation, whether it's in Corinth or any historical situation in our Bible, what is the basic underlying issues that are common to all people to all humanity what common human tendency does this situation in Corinth represent what is common of the heart condition in a human that needs to be addressed whether it's a thousand BC 56 AD in Corinth or 2018 in Murfreesboro and here's the answer Here's what this passage addresses this morning. The desire to have it both ways. And what I mean by that is the desire to have on one hand the privileges and advantage of being safely inside what we think represents a safe, confident relationship with God. But on the other hand, not to be restrained by anything we desire. To to feel confident in our great orthodoxy, but have a life that's brutal when it comes to orthopraxy. See, we love to enjoy the safety of the gospel privileges, but we also love to be free to do as we please, when we please, how we please, to whom we please. Paul's saying that's the danger this morning, to try to have it both ways. It is the church that I grew up in. It is, in many ways, the church of the South. To be slightly connected to biblical community, but actually live in autonomy. It is, it is the danger. I'm, a, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. This is the temptation. That is common to all of us. And it shows up in two common ways in this text. Our craving for our own way. We're going to see that this morning. And then the blaming and grumbling to God when we don't get our own way. This is what 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13 helps us to confront this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased." For they were overthrown in the wilderness. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Paul is taking them back to the Old Testament. And here's the deal it's the real danger of spiritual presumption. Put it another way, what's happening here in one through four, one through five is they have taken for granted the kindness of God to them. And in this presumption, Paul takes them back to the Old Testament to remind them of all the benefits and blessings that the people of Israel experienced under the miraculous care of a loving God. And notice he uses the word all five times in those first four verses. Every Israelite experienced this miraculous care and provision for them, every one of them. But it did not end well as they experienced divine discipline. Verse 1 takes us back to Exodus 13. The cloud by day, light by night never left them. It was a sign of God's presence. Every morning when they woke up and every night when they went to sleep, there was one guarantee in the desert. God is with us. It's the same as the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer. It says in verse 1, they all passed through the sea. Yes, they did. And it's a picture Paul's reminding them, the Corinthian church, as a believer in Christ, God has provided a way out of our spiritual bondage via Christ, just as they provided a way out of the bondage from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. Verse 2, says, Paul says, the people of Israel were baptized into Moses, saying they voluntarily submitted themselves under the leadership of Moses. Just as when we come to Christ, we voluntarily submit ourselves under the leadership of Christ for the rest of our lives. Paul's making this, these connections here. Verse 3 and 4 take us back to Exodus 16. God provided what we know as quail and bread or manna, and water to provide for their daily needs. And just as this morning, we just took a meal where God has provided for us bread and wine, or bread and juice, bread and drink, to remind us of his provision in Christ. Paul, Paul's making all these connections. Verse 4b, he says, The rock... Was Christ, the physical water that God provided for his people in the desert, is indicative of a far deeper provision. This was, we want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. He's saying the the resource, the ultimate stream that we talked about this morning, we sang about, that is Jesus. He was pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. And that water you drink came from the second Person of the Trinity. Paul makes these connections clearly, plainly. And yet he says, in spite of all these blessings and privileges, in verse 5, he tells us it ended horribly. Look what he says. <clears throat> Nevertheless, In light of all these privileges, all these advantages, all these very direct, miraculous, caring provisions straight from the hand of God, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown or overstrong in the desert. It's a horrible picture. It is a Picture of a bloody battlefield of bodies all over the place. And it says most of them, well, most of them, that's true. There were only two. Only two made it to the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. The rest were strung over the desert over a period of 40 years. These people in the Old Testament... And the church at Corinth, and I think we tend to do this, are presuming that all is okay for them spiritually. They are obviously unaffected, but all that God has done for them, and it's why Paul says this, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. You think you're okay? You feel good about yourself spiritually? As soon as you do that, you're in trouble, Paul says. We are in the most danger when we believe we are the most invincible. So what would that look for, like for you and I? The danger of spiritual presumption. Let me lay out an argument by avalanche. And much of what I say here I have experienced in my own life. To be a part of this church in so many ways serving giving showing up participating but really you're playing games spiritually you are not pressing into following hard after Christ you are not personally pressing in and being responsible for your personal following sanctification after Christ trusting in your worldly riches in your heart you say I'm I'm good I'm okay I'm secure You first come to Christ and your heart is so tender towards sin and the thoughts of sin. And this sensitivity over time has turned callous and hard, and we forget the question that the psalmist asks: Does not a little fox ruin the whole vineyard? We tolerate sin. We value our life and bodies more than the state of our spiritual souls. We put so much more emphasis and time and heart about our lives, about our physical looks than the caring of our own souls. We have low thoughts of Christ in the gospel. What I mean by that, It it becomes just another routine, just another thing in our life, along with a hundred other things. Versus what Paul is going to say in a few more chapters in chapter 15. It is the most important thing, and everything flows out of my life in Christ, in God, in the gospel. We think way too highly of our own goodness and we do not see the wretchedness of our own hearts. Oprah Winfrey, and I'm not trying to pick on her, I'm just saying she's, well, a 14-year-old girl asked her the other day in the interview, very clearly, what's your suggestion to make an impact on the world? And Oprah's answer was, follow your heart. The worst, most devastating advice you can give another person is to follow the sinfulness of their own heart your heart we look at people and they're not walking with christ and our, our thoughts are you know what they're a good fella they're just sowing wild oats no they're not they are deeply the scripture says sick and sinful we fail to be watchful over our lives 1 Peter 5.8, we take take it for granted. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we're nonchalant, and he's got a lifetime to take you out. He doesn't have to get you today or tomorrow or next week. But he's coming, and he's looking for a crack. And he loves to see those who are nonchalant about their own spiritual lives. And he gets you and you look back or I look back and say, how how did that happen? And he's been trailing you for years. In our pride, we trust in our gifts. Oh, Lord, forgive me for this. And talents and live not in a genuine heart dependence on God, but in our own self-sufficiency and self-confidence complacency we trust in grace too much i know that's gonna shock some of you this morning we trust in grace too much and here's what i mean by that does the scripture says those in christ there's no condemnation for those in christ absolutely i will never let go of that yes but we fear not enough the mighty hand of a loving God who will discipline his people and say to us, enough, enough to woo us back to himself. We take the Lord's Supper. We've been baptized. We go to Bible study. All good things. It makes us feel so comfortable but yet there's so many areas in our lives that have not been transformed by the gospel, unaffected by the gospel. If this is your mindset, as Spurgeon said in his sermon on presumption, which you can Google and read, will take you a long time. He says, May every man and woman who hears this be lanced by the sword of the Spirit. Paul says that this is your mindset you're in a very dangerous place as a Christian. Take heed, lest you fall. Christian maturity does not think you are less needy. Real Christian maturity is full of healthy fear because they know I could be the next one to be disqualified. I'm reminded of John's words. In Revelation 2, 2-5, through 5, John writes to the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says, I know your deeds to the church. I know, Ephesus, your hard work and your perseverance, Fellowship Bible Church, I know of your deeds. You work hard for the gospel. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not. You're doctrinally sound. You work hard at that and have found them false. You have preserved and have endured hardships for my name. And you've not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. You've lost your first love for Christ. Paul says, That is you, church. That's my fear for my own self. It's being presumptuous. Paul says, You're in real danger. And if that's you, Paul says, The next step spiritual presumption I'm good. I'm coasting on my past laurels spiritually. I'm not pressing hard after Christ. I don't see my need. I trust the goodness of my heart. Paul says the next step is you're in real danger of sinning against the living God. Look at verses. We'll read 6 through 10. Now these things took place as examples for us. All that we just talked about. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul lays out, Spiritual presumption leads to real sin. Verse 6, Paul writes All the times God blessed them with his presence and provision, it says their hearts were set on evil. They were craving evil, desiring evil. And yet we know Paul writes in Colossians 3 Set your hearts and minds to the things above that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Put to death what is earthly and fleshly. The earthly things, and I love how this puts it, that the message puts it, that are lurking within you. Paul's saying those are things lurking within every believer. They lurk there. They just need to be fed. So Paul gives four examples that results in God's discipline against his people. The cautionary tale. Here it is. Verse seven is idolatry. Comes from Numbers chapter 32. It's the golden calf story. Moses is up on the mountain, the people said, hey, you're taking too long. And the people said to Aaron, you lead us. You make us a God that will go before us. They are craving something outside of the limits that God has set for them. That's what's happening here. Aaron told them, gather all your gold. He made a calf. The people gathered around this calf. They offered up worship and sacrifices to this calf. And they sat down, the scripture tells us in number 32, to eat a feast in the presence of this idol with this meal. And they rose up to play. What does that phrase mean? They rose up to play. Here's what it means. It was a chaotic, mind-boggling, mass of people that, were, that you could describe as debauchery, carousing, seduction, to go on a bender or a binge, total depravity, fornication, self-indulgent, wickedness at the highest level. It all happened in a matter just like that. It says God sent a plague on them. Here's what Paul's doing He's saying to the Corinthians, I'm addressing you, Corinthians, eating meals, sacrificed to idols on a Saturday night, and then going next door and having sex with prostitutes on a Saturday night, and then worshiping as if you're okay on Sunday morning. There is a time and place where God would say, enough. Paul says, remember what happened to your forefathers. Having it both ways will cause distraction and destruction. Secondly, immorality. Verse 8, Numbers 25. You can read these texts later. Here's what we know. Immorality always follows idolatry. Immorality always follows idolatry. Romans chapter 1. They worship the created instead of the creator. And then as soon as that happened, idolatry, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to sexual immorality. It always follows in that order. In Numbers 25 Paul saying, takes them back, Israel began to engage in idolatry and sexual adultery with the people of Moab. Again, craving something that was beyond their limits. God has said, no, you are not to engage or marry or be sexually active with the people of Moab. Pagans. And they want it. Numbers 25 says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, and so Israel yoked herself to, the, to Baal of Pir, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and 23,000 died in a single day. That's the whole campus of MTSU falling dead in a moment. <laughs> Sexual immorality is to be fled, not flirted with. A person who is making spiritual presumptions plays with it like a cat playing with a wounded mice. I won't get hurt. I'll be okay. I, I, I can just play with it in my mind, in my heart, with my eyes as long as I don't really touch. It never ends well. Christians who do not take heed lest they fall play a lot in this area. Third one is trial, verse 9. They actually put God on trial. Numbers 21. <laughs> The people became impatient, Numbers 21 tells us, and spoke against God and against Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we ate this worthless food. People, the people of Israel, wanted God to follow their demands and wants, wanted God to bow down to them, but God bows down to no one. He's the one that holds us accountable, not vice versa. They cry to God for food, and he provides, and then they don't like what he provides. It's like having a toddler. They're never satisfied. I want cheese. We just had one in our house a month ago. You give them cheese. I want a cracker. Give them a cracker. I want a different cheese. I mean, grandparents, you know, okay, we got a different cheese. This is a never satisfies the Corinth believers were putting God on trial and in doing so testing God's patience with them they were abusing the privileges and advantages and the kindness and provision and care that God had provided for them God was saying enough that's the danger you're in lastly grumbling verse 10 number 16 it's not wrong to question God The Psalms are full of questions. Oh, Lord, how long? Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, where are you? Lord, I feel this, I feel that. I grieve my soul out. Nothing wrong with that. Grumbling is entirely different. For 400 years, the Israelites had grumbled to God about being in slavery to Egypt. And they were there, remember, because of their own sin. And God frees them out of Egypt. And now they say to Moses, after being freed... Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness just so you can be in charge of us, just so you can feel good about you? <clears throat> Grumbling is given an audible expression to great dissatisfaction with God. It says you know better than God, it challenges God's wisdom. His grace and his goodness and love and somewhere in that it has entitlement rooted deep in its soul that I deserve better versus a perspective that I, I always in Christ, always in Christ, no matter my lot in life, I always get more than I deserve. Ask yourself the question this morning, have you grumbled about your lot in life this month? I've been reading a lot of Joni Erickson Todd in the last few months because I've always, uh, I've always been moved by her story to be a paraplegic for 50 years. And yet, walk with Christ so faithfully. I can't com- compute, I can't, that doesn't register with with me like I would think. Jeff, how could you do that? Just found out, read that she has breast cancer now. Here's what she says. Three quotes from Johnny. My weakness that is my, being a quadriplegic, is my greatest asset (laughs) because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. She says, heartache forces us to embrace God out of desperate, urgent need. God is never closer than when your heart is aching. Contentment she says, has an internal quietness of heart that gladly submits to God in all circumstances. My goodness, folks. That is what Paul is warning the Corinthians and us about. Lastly, the real danger of spiritual presumption turns into the real danger of sinning against the living God. But there, I think, is the worst danger. The real danger of being blinded to the grace of God to us. Verses 11 through 13. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, Paul writes, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, if you're like me, so many times when it comes to temptation, it feels so strong and even overwhelming at times. Can we just acknowledge that? Amen. So we trust in what we feel. That's what I do sometimes. I trust in what I feel, what I desire, what I crave, instead of what's real. But here's what's real. It's actually verse 13. No temptation has taken you, has overtaken you. So whether you're a Christian in Corinth and you're feeling the pressure and desire to worship at a pagan feast and idol and participate in all that that is or a Christ follower today. This verse, as you probably know, has served generations of Christians with great encouragement that grace is stronger than the temptation. God tells us in verse 13, he is eager to provide a way of escape for us And sometimes in the midst of temptation, really the number one thing I need to hear is you don't have to do it. There is a way of escape, a way to endure. And this whole passage in some ways, there's this grace abundant that I think we've overlooked. Look at verse 6. There's the grace of warning. The grace of warning. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 11, the grace of instruction. Now these things happen to them as examples, but they were written down for our instruction. The grace of warning and instruction, though, are only good to us when we actually apply the warning and instruction. I speak at these family life conferences, and I say it, everyone, to Jen and I and to every couple there, the content that you hear this weekend will not change your life. It is the application of the content that will change your life. The same Christ that provided a stream of water for the Old Testament Israelites is the same Christ who provides a powerful stream of grace to those who know him. That's what Paul's saying here. "This same Christ who split the Red Sea to provide a physical escape from the Egyptian slavery is the same Christ who split the barrier of sin between God and man and provides a way of escape from temptations of the world, flesh and devil, who desire to keep you enslaved to them. He will not withhold a way of escape. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Psalms thirty-one, nineteen. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you. Let me end with this thought. The promise or escape from or endurance of temptation in verse 13 comes when we see this God is preferable and God is more beautiful than sin. That's what God's promises. This is not this magical power. He's saying, When you see me as preferable, over sin, are more beautiful than sin. That's your way of escape. Verse 13 promises that a sufficient cause of obedience will always be given in that moment of temptation, that there will be some evidence that God is more to be desired than sin, always. And let me say this, this is why it is so crucial for us individually to be pressing hard into christ without spiritual presumptions i'm okay because as i'm pressing and i'm seeing clearly who he is that he's more beautiful than sin more precious than sin better than sin more preferable than sin the only way i see that is chasing hard after him so in that moment of temptation what i'm Feeling that strong temptation to sin I'm also being counteracted with this boom, popping clarity of who God is and that's the only way I got a chance to endure or escape that's why spiritual presumption is so so dangerous <clears throat> if this text isn't relevant to us I'm not sure what is. So the question this morning is we ask the question so what? Isn't necessarily what does this text mean? But what can I obey? That's always our question when we're not being spiritually presumptuous. What is it that I need to obey this morning? Take a minute and ask yourself that question so me and you and Monty and leadership and all of us can avoid a cautionary tale in our own lives. Take a minute to ask that question.